I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison, and today we're talking about what's next in golf course architecture. We came up with a few things each that we hope or expect to see out of golf architecture in the next, I don't know, call it 10 or 20 years, maybe even longer term if we really want to uh, engage in some science fiction here. But well, basically, problem, we're just we're trying burning, to read the we're tea burning leaves. This, uh, we're burning this topic, you know, if you're saying... 10 to 20 years, we can't uh, do true. another can't one do of again. these for, for 10 to 20 years. So we got to okay. be careful. So Five next to two years. But I, I like the time, the time <laughs> frames for golf architecture are pretty long. Like this <laughs> yeah. stuff, it's not like, you know, making an album. And by the way, that voice you heard is Andy Johnson. I'm Garrett Morrison. I don't think I introduced myself. I'm just all discombobulated here. Andy Johnson, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Doing great. I'm excited to talk about golf architecture uh, and trends. I, I think that this is, um, we're at this spot right now where there's never been more work going on since pre-economic collapse in the mid 2000s um, or late 2000s. Um, so at this point, we're at the stage of golf architecture where there's a lot happening. There's a lot of courses being planned. There's a lot of development there's a lot of work that are being that's being done at existing courses because clubs are full and flush with cash obviously with what's going on in the economy it's a it's it'll be interesting to see how long this lasts um but for the time being there is a lot of work and a lot of enthusiasm for new work in golf and new development in golf so i think this is a timely time to have this conversation there are a lot more new course projects going on right now in North America than there have been for a long time. Now, we're nowhere near the heights of like the 90s or the 60s, obviously. <laughs> I don't think uh, we're ever going to see something like that again unless something huge changes in, in the world. But we are seeing a major uptick in new development. And of course, the restoration and renovation market is pretty active as well. But there's also some uncertainty when it comes to the economy. So we'll see what happens with that. Now, another factor that I think makes this sort of a hinge moment in golf course architecture is a lot of the highest profile golf architects are getting on in years, right? Bill Cora and Ben Crenshaw are both in their 70s. Now, they're both they're both really, you know, they're, they're going hard still. Like if you see Bill Corr, it's not like he's slowing down when he's walking around courses, but just, you know, facts are facts. They're in their seventies. Tom Doak is 61. Gil Hance is 59. David McClay Kidd is in his early fifties. These are not old guys, but they're also not super young guys anymore. Now you also think of Jack Nicholas. You think of Tom Fazio. I think we're at a moment when the architects who have really been the leading figures for the past even 40 years are now starting to get to the tail end of their careers. And one thing that I'm looking for is who's going to emerge as the next 
big architects. I think that's a question on a lot of people's minds. That's not one of my things, by the way, that I'm hoping or expecting. I think that's just something that makes this moment interesting. Yeah, I agree. I think like besides just age, I think the the influx of work has booked these architects out also. So, you know, the capacity issue, you know, Bill, Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw aren't going to do, you know, 10 courses in a year. That's just not how they operate. Right. So, you know, they have, they have, they are booked out. They can't, you know, there's only so much work they can accept. Same with Tom Doak, same with Gil Hans. And, uh, these, these people, these architects are busier than they've ever been with that. That means that there's more overflow. And that is where young people, younger architects are going to get their chances. And that's what is very exciting um, about the next five, six, seven years. It, like you said, the uh, one of the things with, with architecture, and I think this is, you know, it's an important lesson. And I think I this is not meant as a shot at David Kidd's career. But if you look at, you know, the way a golf architect's legacy, like career works, David McClay Kidd built banded dunes and it was obviously and deservingly so celebrated it was a tremendous golf course a a huge golf course and as david kidd said he lost his way then after that for a little while he built some courses that he himself would say are not great golf courses are not fun golf courses to play now the thing about that is he was riding the high of banded dunes got hired for many many jobs and built some mediocre golf courses. And by the time people realize this, he has been hired for no numerous jobs, like because of the the time span of a golf course being built. Right. right? Mm-hmm. It takes really end to end, you're talking about on the very fast end, maybe two years, on the slower end, three to five years. And these developments take a lot of time. So you could get hired for a lot of jobs in that intermediary area where we haven't even seen somebody's second work or first work. So it's going to be, I mean, that's what's so compelling to me about it is that we're going to see architects who, who might build one great golf course, get an influx of work. And then, you know, how do they follow that up? It's just like a band, how, you know, the iconic bands come up with albums, flash in the pan bands come up with an album and in building that that legacy that you know we talk about Bill Core, Ben Crenshaw, or Tom Doak, like where you have a effective roster of great golf courses is so difficult to do, and that it's not about the one course; it's about the collection of courses. Because you know what I think is amazing is how some of these architects, and I think Tom Doak is probably at the forefront of this, continues to push new ideas. Right? Like they, he, he. He seems almost restless with building a course that's anything like another golf course. And some might quibble with, hey, this golf course isn't my cup of tea, but it's always different. And I think that's the thing is that building lots of great courses is way, way more difficult than building one course. And we're just hoping to see some of these young guys get a chance to build one great golf course, but then it's building off that. Yeah. And as you say, it takes a while right? For the shape of an architect's career to become clear. You really only see it in retrospect. And by that point, the architect is already pretty deep into his or her career. So, you know, think about how Corin Crenshaw emerged. Essentially, 
Bill Core had been working in the golf architecture industry since the 70s, right? The late mm-hmm. 70s, at least, with uh, with it Pete Dye. The Shula Dolphins era was when there you got go. to start with Pete that's Dye. A good, that's a good reference point. Yeah, like because that. he uh, that's how he met Pete Dye. You know, mm-hmm. you know, Pete Dye came into his hotel room to watch the right, Dolphins To just game. watch the Dolphins. Wait, was that a Tom Doak story or was that a Bill Core story? That was a Bill Core story. Okay. <laughs> that's Yeah, that's that's he a really, been, really yeah, good one. I, think it was I love a, that. Yeah. <laughs> he said he was the Pete just Dye was like mainly interested in seeing the Dolphins game. <laughs> no, that's that's the main thing that he was doing there. He's like getting away from somewhere so that he could go like just sit and watch the Dolphins game for a while. Yeah. Um that's that's hilarious. So yeah, so Core was grinding away for years and then finally broke out with Kapalua, Sand Hills and other projects in the mid to late 90s. Tom Doak, I think you see much the same trajectory. And so these architects who have just sort of come on our radar Within the past 10 years, it might take a little while longer for us to understand who they are and what they're going to contribute to the discipline, to the art form. Um, and so I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing some some course openings within the next few years by architects who haven't gotten big new build jobs before. That's going to be exciting to me to see what what new is going to be contributed. But that said, we're trying to read the read the tea leaves a bit here, uh, spot some trends and and talk about some things that we hope or expect to see uh, in the near future. So um, what's the first thing that, that you came up with? Why don't we start there? Yeah. So I, I think one of the things that I'm craving is um, developers and developments that might inhabit less spectacular sites. I think the dominant trend in golf architecture has been these faraway lands of swaths of sand and and this is great. I, I'm not saying I'm not advocating for less of these. What I'm advocating for is more balance where we do have some less spectacular sites. Not every site has to be crazy in order for you to have a really good golf course. And one of the things with that is that less spectacular sites are usually closer to large centers of population. So you know, to me, one of the things that I got thinking about a lot at Frisco, at, at PGA Frisco, was how nice it was that a development was actually like near a city. Um, and obviously, that was a unique case. And there are going to be lots of unique cases. But the idea that a golf course can only be built on sand and in a spectacular place and has to be this remote, far off destination golf course is a bit silly to me because if you go through, the you know the best course in the world a lot of the best architecture a lot of the architecture that you really want to talk about you know is on less spectacular sites it allows architects to do a little bit more with their greens and and create a little bit more big features and such so i would love to start to see a you know a trend of like not everything has to be built on huge massive piece of swaths of sand like we can build a golf course and it can be a very, very good golf course on a less interesting piece of land because we have, you know, I believe that this era of architects could build more interesting stuff, the most interesting stuff ever. You know, it seems like they have the education levels. What it require, one of the things that would require is developers to allow them to do that. And I think actually to push architecture more forward. Less interesting land could do it because we get funkier architecture. 
Yeah. No, I was just going to ask, what kind of architecture do you think we would see on poor sites? Would there be a move toward something different than what we have seen on ideally suited sites for the past 20 years or so? Those have been the highest profile courses, courses that are subtly created on great sites for golf. What do you think architects need to change about the way they think about how they do their work if they're building on sites that are not well suited to golf? I think one thing we've talked about on this podcast is like above ground features, ramping yeah. like where you have like just quirky stuff, you know, you can get a little bit more aggressive with greens. I think like, you know, and I think there's some pushback with with greens and, and people, oh, it's not fair. Like if they hit a green and it's really hard to two putt, that's not fair. But really, I think like from a, a day-to-day playability standpoint, you want greens that have a lot of different spot whole uh different pockets and that drive strategy back. When it's mm-hmm. just a simple flat tilting green, you know, it kind of plays the same every day. And you have to be precise in everything, but you know, the more dependent you are on natural features such as topography and things to take over. I think the other thing about it is everybody is like obsessed with these big dramatic sites, right? More subtle sites lend itself to being more walkable, more easier to get around. Like just they don't sap as much energy from you. You can play quicker. You can play more golf potentially. And the one of the big things I notice is a lot of the greatest courses in the world really are centered around like one or two key geographic features and almost every plot of land has those types of features, right? Like Chicago golf is a good piece of land. It's not a a sublime piece of land, but it really just, you know, if you drive around that area, you see that type of land in prairies all over the place. And it's like, there's a a central knoll that a lot of the holes Mm -hmm. play through. There's another ridge that you play off of, and that's really it. And then it leans more on golf architecture. And I think there's a huge talent in routing a golf course on a dramatic, spectacular site and getting the most out of spectacular site. That's one facet of architecture. There's another facet and skill of architecture to be able to, you know, wring out every ounce of interesting architecture from a less spectacular site. And like these sites are usually a little bit more available closer to population centers, which I, that's my big thing that I would like to see. Destination golf's great, but can we get stuff that's like within an hour of places? So this is something that you hope to see, but maybe don't necessarily expect. Yeah. Because I, I, I'm not sure I see that trend emerging right now. I would love for that to happen. My concern is that a lot of golf development right now is targeted at the very high end of the market. We have these small clubs and these premium resorts. That's where a lot of action is happening right now. To my mind, I'm not seeing enough activity at the local level, city courses, you know, even middle class kind of public courses. I would love to see more being done in those areas, but that portion of the market right now seems to be a little bit quiet. Would you agree with that or or do I have the wrong impression? No, I think so. I think there's there's stuff that could be coming that might be a little bit closer, but almost everything's always driven around 
private model, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. And that, and that's, I mean, this is the world we live in where, you know, income inequality is, is ramping up, right? That money is being more and more concentrated in the hands of a few people. And, and so I don't want to belabor that point because that's not that kind of podcast. But I think what we're seeing in golf is reflective of, of what's happening more broadly in the world. Now, this sort of my first thing, this is both something that I hope for and something that I sort of expect to see happen within, you know, in this next wave of golf architecture. And it kind of aligns with what you're talking about, building courses on more subtle sites. What I'd like to see is more experimentation with what I've heard you call in the past golden age maximalism. And what you mean by golden age maximalism is basically a lot of aggressive shaping around certain features on the course, mostly the greens, but also, you know, some bunkers in the fairways here and there where the architects really go to work and build something bold, build something that is sculpted and that doesn't necessarily blend into the natural environment. But then the move elsewhere is to keep things natural, right? to maintain the natural terrain aside from those concentrated spots where you do a lot of artistic work. I would like to see more of that because I think that the trend recently has been toward making everything blend, making the greens blend, making bunkers blend, making it all seem like it belongs. Now, some architects are better at that than others. Corin Crenshaw are the gold standard. Not all architects are as good as they are at making everything look like it belongs. But I would like to see more architects, and I expect to see more architects, start to do some more aggressive shaping around greens and on bunkers, build these vertical features that you were talking about, you know, whether they're little kind of berms or, you know, edges to the bunkers or built up edges of the greens like we see at uh, Walter Travis courses. That kind of stuff is really cool, but I think that the way to make it really work and to make it different from the overshaped stuff that we saw come out of big firms in the 80s and 90s is to leave the rest of the landscape undisturbed, okay? And this is what, you know, you've called this golden age maximalism before. This is essentially what Langford and Moreau did at a lot of their courses, right? The fairways were often very natural, sat naturally on the land, but the greens and bunkers were were super boldly shaped. This is what Seth Rayner did at a lot of his courses. This is what Walter Travis did at the courses that we, we saw in, on the East Coast when we were last there. I would like to see more uh, you know, work inspired by that. And I, I see some architects moving in that direction. Yeah, I think that this is a this is kind of a best of both worlds situation um in a way i think i love natural golf design where it's really you know everything ties in i i'm not saying but different forms of of the art of golf architecture are, are essential for things to push forward and i think why this works so well is because when you're being very natural with the land that's going to require and i think where a lot of maximalist projects fall short is the routings end up being very clunky. They don't yeah. work with the land right, and they're they're moving earth to fix problems rather than solving the problems with the routing. And they and they grade too much. They yes. they they flatten too much out in the fairways. Everything is shaped 
I'm talking about just shaping in particular places and leaving a lot of stuff alone. My problem with the courses that the maximalist, truly maximalist courses you're talking about is that once you're in a completely created environment, then you really start to feel alienated from the land. Well, I think the other thing is that the the routing, there's no routing exercise because you can build whatever you want. And the idea of finding the best golf holes doesn't exist because it's we can go create the best golf holes. And what happens is that that disrupts the way that you go on. Like, I think the walk and the journey of a golf course is is the most important part of it. And when you're not even concerned with that because you can just bulldoze your way to a routing that you like rather than, hey, you know, I'd like to go over here, but it's kind of like, I don't know how we're going to get out of there. And it's that work and that effort that goes into figuring out how to get in and out of places. I think that truly makes, you know, the great courses greater than, you know, it, it, there are little corners that they get into a nook that they get into and you wonder how am I going to get out of there? And it's the creativity and ingenuity to get out of there. When you just bulldoze your way around there, you lose that journey a little bit because yeah. everything, as you said, is kind of a made-believe environment. And I think that is a that's a essential thing. I, I, that's why I like about it is go go crazy everywhere else, but build the golf course, let the land be the land because that's what makes the place special. Yeah, and I, I think that architects can free themselves from the notion that they have to tie everything in, right? Do you have to tie every green in or tie every bunker in, make it look like it flows into the natural landscape? No, I don't think so. Like, I think that sometimes you can do something that is really audacious and sculptural with a a golf course design, but there needs to be enough of the natural landscape left intact so that you allow the golfer to connect with the natural terrain, I think, in my opinion. Now, your point about routing makes me think of, you know, something that I, 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 I often like to say about golden age architects, and that's that, you know, why is it that so many golden age architects from the 10s, 20s, and 30s were so good at routing? It wasn't because they're smarter than today's architects. It wasn't because they're smarter than Tom Fazio or Jack Nicholas. It was because they had to be good at routing, right? To make the courses work at all. They couldn't move stuff around that much. So they had to figure out how to make their courses link together. And in order to do that, they had to be really good at routing, had to work a lot on the routing. I think that the ability to move a lot of earth kind of made that art a little bit lost. And that's why we see maximalist courses that sometimes have these clunky routings. If you can build everything, if you're if you're just creating everything, sometimes you just get a little bit lazy with the routing of the course. And also golf carts have, have had an impact here, obviously. All right. Uh, my next one, renovations. Yeah, <laughs> I knew we'd talk about it. This is uh, this is absolutely going to happen. This is an expectation. Yes. This is the what I'd like to see the the my my one before about less spectacular sites. Renovations are absolutely going to happen. And I think that this is extraordinarily compelling. The just to give people an idea that don't know like the life cycle of an irrigation system is about 30 years. 
So if you think about that, that's the best time. When you have to redo irrigation, that's the best time to renovate your course because you're already going to be doing a lot of disturbance, right? So that's when, you. if you think about like, it's like, oh, we're going to do the bathroom and it's connected to the living room, but we want to do the living room. We're going to save money by doing them both at the same time because we aren't mm-hmm. going to just, you know, we're going to disturb the house either way and we might as well do them both at the same time. They're already there. We're saving money, right? So this <laughs> is like how this analogy. <laughs> renovation this is will work, you know? So irrigation. So if you think about it, 30 years, roughly, right? It, some last longer, some, some go kaput earlier, but you're looking at like late 80s, 90s, early 90s golf architecture that needs to get worked on. And really like, that's not good architecture. I mean, there's a lot of, <laughs> lot of housing, lots of mass production of golf courses, lots of housing golf courses where like the purpose of the golf course was to sell houses al- along it on both sides of it. And who's going to be doing this work is a one question I have, but B like, who's going to be doing really cool? Like, what do you do with a golf course that's got like a 40 yard wide corridor and houses on both sides. How do you retrofit these and make them more interesting and better golf courses? Or do they cease to be golf courses? Do they become less than 18 holes because the ball goes further and more offline and more balls are in houses? Or like, there's also another aspect of this. You have like the bad courses. What happens with like the really, like kind of the purpose of the golf course was to sell homes and the golf course was an afterthought, and you have this kind of a disaster, right? But then you also have golf courses on great pieces of land that are just kind of mediocre. If you took that golf course and you renovate it and you go like, hey, we're going to start over. We have the infrastructure of the clubhouse, but we're going to reroute, rebuild. Like We could have some courses that go from being kind of afterthoughts to really good golf courses because they're on good pieces of land. And some of these, like let, like some, there are pro- existing sites that are very good for golf in population centers that have a very mediocre golf course on it, where if you take over and you pour five, $10 million into it, you could then all of a sudden have the, the talk of the town, right? Mm-hmm. This is, this is going to be a thing. And Figuring out, like, one th- of the hard things with doing big renovation work, and I, I kind of picked this up at when I visited Pinehurst four years ago when uh, when Gil's crew was, Gil K- Hans's crew was, was renovating it. They put so much effort into undoing the bad work. Like, you it, say somebody bulldozes and, and ruins a great landform with, with really bad shaping, right? You have to spend so much time just putting back the natural landform. Yeah. Or or you don't even know what the natural landform was, which exactly. is really really tragic. Yeah. So, you know, this is not this is not this is a different skill than re- restoration. This is a different skill than new construction. It's almost like you put things back and then you start building. Another idea I kind of have always thought about when I go to a golf course that's got containment mounding and all these artificial mounding, how much better the golf course would be if you played over those mounts instead of <laughs> in between them. And I'd right. be, I, 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 like, I think about this all the time. It's like, 
could you take a golf course that's got like stricken with containment mounding? So what that means is big mounds on either side of the hole. Yeah. That and kind the fairways of are off, flat. Yeah, that wall off the hole, right? And like you're kind of playing in this environment. Now, what if we took that and built the golf over those mounds? And then those mounds would all of a sudden kind of be really neat golf hole features. You could put greens on top of them. You could put greens over them. You could, you know, you could have fairways that go have these big undulations through them if you're playing over them and not through in between them. So I am, I, this is the thing that I would say that I'm most interested in with golf design is, is finding the golf courses that are, are pretty mediocre that inhabit really wonderful golf golf sites and exploring what those golf courses could become with the right combination of architect and redesign effort. I like that. I wonder where the money is going to come from to do these renovations. And if it's only a little bit of money, then what does a renovation that costs, I don't know, three to $4 million look like? I th- not not that much now because the rising costs. It's like the irrigation's like double what it used to be. Um, so I think that's like one of the things, right? Is like costs are higher than ever, and and that's that's the tricky thing, and, and that is probably what's going to constrict doing a lot of these things. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, I wonder what the floor is now for a renovation budget that could do something great. Because I'm I'm always impressed by how little money they spent on the work at common ground and how much they were able to do and how little money they spent on the work at soul park. When Gil did that years ago, after the a flood absolutely destroyed the course and they had to spend most of the money just recovering the golf course and, and doing, you know, some basic things to get the place functional again, rebuilding bridges. And Oh yeah, they completely transformed the golf course in, in, in the process and they did it on a fairly tight budget. I feel like these things are possible, but they have become harder recently because of, of inflation and rising costs. So that, that is kind of a, a red flag there for, for the possibilities around the renovation of courses that are more recent. But yeah, I, I kind of wonder at some point whether there's going to be a craze for restoring Tom Fazio courses, <laughs> right? Uh, like, are, are we going to deify those architects at some point? I don't really see that as a as a great possibility right now. I don't, I don't see any building momentum towards that. But, you know, once golf courses get old enough, then they're going to start to be considered classic to a degree. And so I wonder if we're going to stick to our guns as a kind of golf architecture nerd community and say that, you know, that we got to restore that catch basin back left of the green. <laughs> right, exactly. There used to be a lovely catch basin over there. <laughs> let's, let's put that back in, you know. <laughs> well, was, if, uh, if the houses around the course get bulldozed, we have to we have to do something to recreate the feel of the houses being there. Yeah, I mean there's there's like ridiculous stuff that you could think of. But I, I just wonder like where where the where the fashions are going to go with which architects are deified and which aren't. What the good news I think from my taste is that um what's the phrase of like the uh time away makes the heart grow fonder? <laughs> yeah. So exactly. I think we've at least got a period a decade or two of of time away. 
you yeah. know, before yeah. before the heart grows fonder. And at that point, I'll be, you know, I'll be pretty old. We'll, we'll uh, both be pretty old. We'll we'll be we'll be phasing out <laughs> anyway. So so maybe maybe that's fine. Um, all right, well, we could be the we could be the one saying, "What are we doing at that point?" Again, we could be a, a full circle. All right, my next thing. This is another one that is both kind of a hope and an expectation. It sort of links up with these ideas about low-cost renovations of courses that are, you know, not necessarily they don't necessarily belong to private clubs, but were built, you know, say 30 years ago and that are going to kind of cycle around because the irrigation system needs to be improved or the bunkers need to be rebuilt or something like that. So this is about those courses, that crop of courses that needs to be worked on. There's another factor here that's going to change the nature of the work that's done on those courses. And it's going to change the nature of golf architecture in general. And that is climate change. It's going to get hotter. It's going to get drier. Water is going to get more expensive. Now, these are big questions for agronomy right now. These are big questions for superintendents. So that's kind of another subject. But where I think it becomes a question for an architect is just the fact that it's going to be more expensive in many places to run a golf course in the future than it is now because of the cost of water and other things. And so a huge question that architects need to ask themselves when they're building golf courses now or renovating golf courses is how expensive is the work I'm doing and how expensive is it going to be to maintain? And so I think when an architect designs a bunker now or designs a green, that the first question, question 1A should be, is this interesting golf? But question 1B should be, how much is this going to cost to maintain into the future? And how hardy can I make this feature, this bunker or this green, while still making it interesting for golf? So I would like to see more and more economical forms of golf course design. And I think that the nature of running a golf course in the future is going to necessitate that owners are asking architects, how cheap can we make this? And let's try not to lose the quality in the process. I don't think we have to lose the quality. But I think that architects need to have in their minds more how much it's going to cost to maintain a certain feature that they're building. And for public courses in particular, I hope that they start asking themselves, and I, I expect that they'll need to reckon with this, do we need sand bunkers? Or is there another possibility for hazards that we can have throughout our golf course? Because, I mean, I just look at the cost of maintaining bunkers. It just sinks public courses right now. The flip side is expectation changes with golfers. Which yes, one? That's, which that's one's huge. the more difficult, right? Yeah, and I think one of the things that should be included with this is like, to me, one of the things that doesn't make sense is we, we judge best new course, like the day it opens. And to me, that lets two people off the hook. It lets the architect and the owner off the hook. Absolutely. The golf course should be built so that it ages well, and, and this wouldn't be much fun. And I, I contend that this would make this would t steal a lot of the fun of a new course opening away, right? But, like, the golf course should be, you know, I want to know how it is five years in 
because is does the architect does the design work does the construction work hold up like has there been so many washouts in a bunker that they decided to get rid of the bunker has you know did a, a green not work so that they just decided to stop you know cutting one of the corners of the green and that's that really cool green doesn't exist in the full capacity anymore does you know does the owner not want to put into the time to maintain the golf, de- the brilliant golf design that was put there? You know, that owner shouldn't benefit from getting the bump of like, Hey, we were the best new course 10 years ago and still market off that if they aren't holding up their end of the bargain. Yeah. And I think that's like something with it. Like it's, it's the idea of, of responsible ownership and responsible architecture. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, building something that, you know, might take a couple hours to mow. If what if like, what if they decide they don't want to spend that time mowing and it's yeah. like, uh, that, you know, that costs us X amount of dollars over the course of the year. Like that's effectively one person's job for a year. Like it, it, it obviously we have rising labor. There's besides the water, there's rising labor costs. Obviously like autonomous mowing and stuff is going to come. But there's still a cost with that as well. Like there, mm-hmm. you know, all these things, everything that goes in. And I think like one of the things is like scale is great. And I think that like big scale, but like some of the best courses also have small scale, yeah. you know? Yeah, right. I mean, and so this is a restriction on an architect's art and it may not be welcome because of that. But as we know, restrictions often produce really good art. And so what happens when architects are asked to build stuff really economically? I think that sometimes they could come up with interesting stuff. So I think there's an opportunity there, but it is definitely a a, a looming problem that owners are going to have to deal with. Now, just one more point related to your idea about how you know owners – and architects should be accountable for how their courses age. That's that's absolutely true, and it's something that's so not emphasized enough. But just think of the most successful restorations that we've seen or the most genuine, authentic golf course restorations we've seen. Generally, they've been restorations where the architect has stayed connected to the club for a number of years, and where there's a superintendent who's given some authority, some freedom to do the restoration work as well and and really is there to be accountable for it. And the architect is there to be accountable for it. And uh, so that's a big deal. And it's, it's something that should be talked about more. And so, uh, yeah, something to keep an eye on. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by the Fried Egg Pro Shop. This is at ProShop.com dot the fried egg.com. we have a lot of cool stuff in there andy what should people know about in the pro shop yeah for sure we're we're stocked up and obviously we have uh you know the holidays around the corner this is a, a great time to go in there it's cold you know you can get beanies in there you can get we just launched some new head covers most of them i believe are gone at this point but there are a few left uh in different colors uh we will be trying to restock those uh but other than that we have vests we have we have pullovers we have all sorts of stuff really for fall and winter as the temperatures get a little cooler i know like you know i work out of a shed here uh you know i've i'm having to go out in the morning 
uh, with a little bit more layers on than a few months ago. So I'm feeling it. I was wearing a beanie this morning. So, uh, you know, this is the time of year. If you if your closet needs a little refresh, we have a ton of stuff in there, whether it be the fried egg, the shotgun start. Um, and, uh, you know, we should have some more on the way. So check it out. ProShop.TheFriedEgg.com. And uh, thank you as always. Let's go to your, this is your third thing now, right? Final thing. There you go. Okay. What is uh, it? Shorter courses, not short courses. All right. I'm, I'm not saying I don't like short courses. I don't want to see short courses. I want to see shorter courses just in general. And you're talking like how long? I mean, I I don't really care. Like, I just think that like 6,200 yards is fine. I think 5,400 yards is fine. I think 4,800 yards is fine. Like, I just like the idea of shorter courses. I... Mm-hmm. I'm interested, you know, Sedge Valley will be a very compelling course to watch. It, it obviously that's one of the new courses at Sand Valley. It's Tom Doak's. There's, it's like a lot of short par fours, long par threes, par 68, you know, kind of the idea. This, it, it touches on this idea. I'd like to see more golf courses that aren't like 7,000, like the champion. I mean, who's building a championship? What does even a championship golf course mean anymore? Who? What's the point when the USGA has booked out all of their tournaments and the PGA has booked out all? What's even the point of building a championship golf course? That's the thing. That's the unintended benefit, maybe, of all of these majors being booked out years and years in advance. I mean, it's ridiculous, but... Also, it might kind of free up golf course developers to say, well, we're not going to get one of those tournaments, so we might as well make something fun. I would love to see somebody that's building a destination club, for example, say, you know what? We're going to build a 5,600-yard course, and we're going to do it so you hit every single club in your bag. Yeah. And guess what? It's going to be so fun because you could come here and play 54 holes or 36. You're going to play 36 holes and feel great. You could come play 54 holes and feel and still it'll feel like you played 36 because, you know, we're not taking up a ton of land. Our resources are going to be limited that go into it. And we're going to build just like a thrilling, fun, different golf course that still tests you the way a 7,200 yard course does because we can do this in different ways. Mm -hmm. We can make more long par threes. We can have one par five. We can have, you know, a bunch of short fours. We can have some long fours. Like par really doesn't matter. We're just going to go build fun golf that's varied. And you can do that at any yardage. It doesn't like you don't need 7,200 yards to build a varied test, right? I think, you know, I was talking to Andrew Green recently. He talked about how he he's building like 280 yard par threes on every golf course. That And he says, it's the only time I can actually put a long iron in a good player's hands now and have consequence because the only other time you're hitting long irons is off the tee on a four. And it's like, okay, I can make up if I don't hit it perfect or I'm hitting into 40 yard or 30 yard wide fairway. Like, you know, I'm not going to hit that bad of a shot or you're hitting a second shot into a par five with a long iron. And it's fine if you miss the green, but on a long par three, you feel the pressure. You're like, oh, I have to hit a perfect shot here. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the thing is that actually shorter golf courses will lead to more consequence. Like if you were playing with retro equipment at a regulation size course where you feel the prep, like 
I've spent the entire year basically playing a retro bag of clubs. And what I've noticed is, man, I have to really, really golf my ball to play well because I'm constantly hitting mid irons and long irons in holes. Well, you can do that in different ways. It doesn't have to be, you know, take the driver out of people's hands more often. And, and, you know, you're going to get around faster. You're probably going to end up hitting more drivers in a day of golf this way because you're going to be able to play more golf and you're going to be able to pack more golf in. And this doesn't have to be a club. This doesn't, but this can be closer to population centers. There is more, you can get less land and build golf on it, more golf on it, you know, with shorter courses. I, I think one of the keys to what you're saying is take driver out of people's hands more often during a round of golf, because we've somehow gotten to a place in the history of golf somewhere we went wrong, where we have massively overemphasized the driver and that courses have to accommodate good players or strong players hitting driver on basically every hole except for the par threes. And I don't see why that has to be the case. You know, we could really shrink courses and have people hit driver on some holes, but there would be other holes where you're where you're not hitting driver. I mean, what's the big deal with that? Why are we emphasizing driver friendly holes so often? And what it creates is this expectation of a par 72 course of 7000 yards. And, you know, just th think if you, Andy, were playing modern equipment. You know, you, you hit a driver up around 300 yards. You're playing a 7,000 yard par 72 course. I think that at a lot of those courses all day, you're hitting driver eight iron. Yeah. You're just hitting driver eight iron over and over again. You could play a 5,500 yard course where you would hit a massive more variety of clubs where you would hit some drivers, exactly. you'd hit some long irons. It just depends on the variety of holes that you have. You can have a 250-yard par 3 on a 5,500-yard course. You can have a 480-yard par 4 on that course. But yeah. you would have to have some shorter holes as well. Well, that, why can't again, there be you're, you're seven par 3s? Why can't there be seven par 3s on a course? Like, I absolutely. Yeah. That's the big thing. There need to be more par 3s on courses like this. And it's, if you have seven par 3s, all of a sudden then you can have such variety. They could all play a little bit different direction. They could all have different yardages. Like you could configure courses so like just let go of the idea of the championship golf course. It's like mm -hmm. you could arguably make the more fun of a golf course doing this because you'd have more variety in the shots you're hitting. Yeah, this might be hugely oversimplified, but a big part of the blame for why we arrived at this firm notion that a championship golf course has to be 18 holes and, you know, par 72 ish is the old course at St. Andrews <laughs> because blame in the old course. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. I, we, we all love the old course, but if you go back to like the 1830s, the old course was like the longest course in Christendom, you know, like all these other courses had like, you know, 13 holes, seven holes, you know, half of which were par threes, you know, like there were all sorts of different kinds. And, but, you know, eventually people just decided to settle on this idea that St. Andrews was the gold standard. And I don't blame them because clearly St. Andrews was better than these other courses, but you know, we've, we've gotten to a point where we're just building the same thing over and over again. And, and I'm not sure how we get out of it. I would love, I would love to see that happen. And maybe part of it is this, you know, developers just losing hope 
that they're going to get major championships. I think that could actually have a beneficial impact in some sense because they can just let go of that. That's not the reason that they're building their golf course. So with like Aaron Hills is a good example. Like that's a golf course that went out of its way to host championship golf. And, you know, it had a big piece of land and, you know, I'm not sure exactly the, the total acreage, but I, I've heard numerous times they've had different architects out to see if they could add golf to it. And because the golf was so spaced out and they were, they were seeking to host major championship after major championship that like the golf was spaced out to, to fit infrastructure, to have space for grandstands, to have big golf, a big golf course, a long golf course. And now like you look at Aaron Hills and there aren't many championships coming back to it. And you look at the land, it's, it's a tremendous piece of land. It's a piece of land that could easily house 36 holes of really great golf. And right now they kind of have like a good golf course that occupies this huge piece of land that doesn't allow for more golf. So when, you know, and at the same time, like they have a women's open coming. That's great. I I'm excited for that, but there aren't any men's opens coming, which was the whole impetus to build this gigantic gargantuan golf course and use all this land. Now, like long-term would the business of Aaron Hills be better suited to have a couple really great golf courses that are a little bit smaller, a little bit more in the vein of something that maybe Mike Kaiser would build and that occupy a smaller footprint, but they allow for 36 holes over more overnight guests similar, like, you know, a situation where people want to play more golf, you know, that that's one of those courses that just sticks out. It's like, if, if championship golf wasn't considered, what would Aaron Hills look like? Yeah. We got to have the championships. So my last thing, this is something I expect to see in the, in the near future, a transformation that I think that golf course architecture is undergoing. And it's a, this is a slightly different, um, topic than what we've been talking about. I'm talking about the structure of the golf architecture business, how architects do their business. I see in the future that there are going to be fewer and fewer mega firms that employ a lot of people that have a physical office and that do a bunch of different projects and kind of have a top-down structure where you have the lead architect and then you have people working under that architect, you have office people, you you have a division of labor. I think that what we're going to see more and more of is these kind of free-floating alliances between artisans. Now, this is not going, going to be all of the jobs that are done in golf architecture. This, uh, this might be a little too romantic for it to absolutely take over the industry. But architects who have worked as shapers can do their own work on equipment. And I see them sort of teaming up with each other to do kind of design build projects that they're able to do pretty cheaply and without a lot of the overhead costs that big architecture firms have. So I'm thinking of architects like Brian Schneider, right? How many Brian Schneider has worked, has been on the podcast a couple of times, I believe, and has worked for Renaissance Golf Design, Tom Doak's outfit. He has, uh, the way that he's doing work is is pretty interesting, right? Where he kind of teams up with other architects like Blake Conant um, or Kai Golby, and he does these different jobs with these different alliances. 
And so I think that we're going to see more and more of that where these architects are able to do kind of design build work and they have these kind of temporary partnerships, collaborations with other shapers, artisans who are in the same mold. And, you know, that's how they can get jobs. They offer something at a lower cost and they do a lot of it themselves. So it's a different model than the mega firm. Yeah. It's like a collaboration. You get like collaborate. It's almost like how breweries and, and different things do do work, right? Like this craft artisan culture, it, it drives collaboration. Yes. Yeah, I agree with this. And, you know, maybe and we saw it a little bit at like Streamsong where that golf course is kind of collaborative between Tom Doak and Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw. Mm-hmm. Those those they created a effectively like plan for that golf course and they work together, right? I it'd be interesting to see if if we ever get to the point where we have like a big collaboration, right? Do like mm. you know four architects get together and and you build a golf course? Like it would be hard to imagine seeing more than like two or three get together. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're talking about architects like Corin Crenshaw or Tom Doak or Gil Hance, right? I think that those are for all intents and purposes mega firms. You know, they're different from the Jack Nicholas mega firm. They're different from the Tom Fazio mega firm. They aren't taking on nearly as much work. They pay a lot more attention to individual projects, but they are pretty big. You know, I'm talking more about just like these sort of roving architects who don't really employ anybody, just sort of employ themselves. Sometimes, you know, Brian Schneider is going to be the lead lead architect and Blake Conan is going to shape for him. And sometimes Blake Conan is going to be the lead, lead architect and maybe Schneider will come out and help or maybe Kyle Franz will come out and help. And then on the next project, it's Kyle Franz, the lead architect, and uh, Riley Johns is going to come out. To, I mean, I don't know. You know, like it's it's that kind of structure to the business, which I think is very different from what Robert Trent Jones established in the post-war period as to, you know, how you do golf architecture. And in my opinion, it produces more interesting work and a more, a greater variety of work. So I'm, I'm optimistic about it. Yeah. I mean, that's how you get that blend of ideas, the collaboration. What really it's more is a throwback more to the golden age where a lot of guys weren't professionals, but they work together on things because they were just trying to build the best golf courses they could build. I think the thing that has to happen is like the, the money has to work. And that's really, I think when you see people, the silos start to happen and the firms start to happen was when golf architecture really got professionalized. Mm -hmm. And in a way we're kind of moving to where everybody's a little bit more of an independent contractor. It's, it's just really interesting how this business is structured. It's such a weird little industry, you know, like it's, it's pretty small, but there's a lot of money associated with it. And so it's, it's both small and big, and there are so many different ways of doing it. And, uh, and just the, the way it's kind of changed over time, it's gone through these kind of extreme transformations and how the work is done. And I think we're in the, in the midst of, of one of those again, uh, right now. So, uh, we'll see what happens with it, but, uh, cool. I think we covered a lot of territory there. Um, yeah. And anything else to add, or you want to wrap up there? Wrap up there. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Meg Atkins. Something that I think you should do right now 
is go rate and review the fried egg podcast. Those really help us find new listeners. Now, I just said that in a way that it sounded like I was ordering you around. You, you don't have to do it. You really don't have to do it. But we would really appreciate it if you did do it, if you rated and reviewed our podcast, uh, because it does help. So I hope that I've, I've really given the, the hard and soft sell there. All right. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back later this week or maybe next week. We'll see.